Hello everyone, I'm Max. From the city to the forest, I think that covers everything we got. Essentially, Earth. One issue is rightfully in the top headlines these days. That's global warming. Where it comes from, what it's doing, what it could do, what it won't be. Most of these issues could use a lot of discussion, and we'll get to that. But we can tell you one thing about the last what. What it won't be is easy. This is the gadfly, and we're here to raise hell to prevent it from becoming a reality. Hi, my name's Henning, and that was a really good line, Max. In light of all the informational chaos, we would like to present to you several segments a month that will get your gears turning and keep your head from spinning. Right. Every show, Maxime will toss off two or three little news bits, and we may discuss them or not. Then I will present a more interesting section on science or philosophy. All of the issues we talk about on the show are related in some way to the environment with an immediate eye to global climate change and sustainability. Though we may differ on how to achieve it, we both agree that preserving the environment is the most important, the single most pressing and pivotal cause that we can devote a portion of our busy lives to. So, on with the news. Actually, arriving in our country a bit late. These vital bits of information were homegrown in the UK in February of 2005, and somehow made it over here a year and a half later. Jeffrey Lean in Manaus researched this article, and one month ago, the following was reported from that February 2005 document for the Independent. The Great Amazon River is drying up. One year ago, scientists concluded optimistically that in two years' time, if the drought in that region were to continue, the Amazon rainforest would begin to die. The logging in the area has destroyed much of the Amazon's ability to cope with heat. Over one-fifth of the rainforest is gone, and over another fifth, 22%, is damaged. This is close to half of the rainforest, which, quote, computer models predict as the tipping point that marks the death of the Amazon, unquote. From this same document, it is reported that the 90 billion tons of carbon which are contained in the forest would be released upon its demise increasing the rate at which global warming is currently occurring by 50%. The trees being vanquished, the land would not survive, possibly transforming the once plentiful land into desert. This event could complete a type 2 climate change, resulting in such catastrophic shifts that it would destroy the biosphere and make the surface of the earth incapable of supporting any life. This report was created over one year ago, which says to me, in plain speak, plainer than it's ever been in human history, that if man-made destruction of the environment he was born into continues for one more year, we might undo our existence, and the existence of all life on the planet. Needless to say, for this reason, I feel it is beyond subjective to suggest an imperative above all else, that the rainforest did not suffer drought in the year of 2007, regardless of result. Solutions? I implore the world. Solutions? It may seem obvious to me, but perhaps that's just because we, the gadfly, value life as much as the human. All human activity that harms the rainforest instead of helping the rainforest must cease at once. This is one of the many ways we could theoretically push the climate past a point of no return beyond which everything would spiral out of control though not all of them end with the eradication of life like this one. The greenhouse effect is the big one. Some of the others are uh, the ice sheets melting enough that more sunlight is absorbed by Earth than reflected, in turn causing more ice to melt. 
There's the redirection of ocean current so that deep, cold water no longer cycles to the surface. There's the ever-present threat of nuclear winter, of course. Any others you can think of? How about the gray fog, a nanotech-driven plague of man-made robot viruses? You read too many comic books. Actually, the greatest environmental threat is our own resource use, and the one hiding importantly in the news today is the usage of water. Most Americans don't have to deal with this prospect, despite its deep relation to us. However, it is a growing science. The expanding desert in northern China, which threatens to move tens of millions of rural people to the already overcrowded and under-resourced inner cities, is compounded by the pollution and over-damming of the Yellow River. In Africa, the Nile is being considered by Egypt and Ethiopia for hydroelectric plants and even some more redirection. With the crisis of every major river of the world faltering and losing power due to human redirection and causing political rifts, and time running out due to hotter summers demanding more and more water, it seems time to start figuring out how to better manage the water resources of the planet. If we are going to continue peaceful negotiation of resources, our understanding of this problem is going to need some attention. This does not just mean multilateral talks with the UN. This means a multifaceted address to the nations of the world. The UN is a start, though. Until then, we can at least attempt progress our stubborn market-derived way, as attention to the wetlands issue in California was given a very recent headline. From the Environmental News Network, a place I expect we will be borrowing a lot from, under the title, quote, Dam Broken to Restore California Wetlands, unquote from August 25, 2006. A wide swath of wetlands known as the Bolsa Chica area were returned Thursday, August 25th, the ocean water necessary to sustain itself when a dam was destroyed after 30 years of environmental groups pushing for its removal. Residential companies and oil companies retreated from the area little by little as plots were purchased for preservation. Especially a group called, plainly enough, Amigos de Bolsa Chica, concentrated on the project and finally succeeded with cooperation from the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach and voter-approved government bonds. More projects of the type are underway in the area, the rest of which is still under contract with oil companies. As you hear, progress can be made. However, it does take a long time to preserve land. Thirty years is too long to wait now for change for the rainforest, and extreme political measures must be taken to allow for the changes to happen on the scale that is necessary to handle the multiple, very wide, and very tall hurdles coming our way. The election this November is nearly too late to put in place those who would consider this issue on the table. However, it is both all we have and more than we think it is. Global warming is changing hearts and minds in both camps, all camps I should say. Despite the gadfly's mission to convince the indifferent, it is a far greater and far easier goal to motivate the convinced. I will now venture, as I expect to every month, a suggestion for you. Oh, your sense of justice is spurned, no doubt. How could they? Before I downloaded this show, I had only my current responsibilities, and now they are saying I have more. Well, no credit to them. Don't think that, precious listeners. You do whatever you do, and be thankless by the earth either way. But will you forgive yourself if you don't speak one word to anyone, anywhere, be it a stranger, a higher-up, or a friend who already sympathizes, about this crisis and what must be done? We have complete control over all the circumstances determining our chance of survival. We'll have no one to blame but ourselves if we fail. Alternatively, the spiral of silence will be the cyclone of our planet's drain, flushing away our resource-heavy existence. People, fellow cells in the body of humanity, 
do not let us go quietly. If anyone calls you a hippie for using critical thinking to examine the world around you and act on your wisdom, just remind them that hippies have great taste in music. But we're not hippies. We're smarter, and Henning is here to prove it for the both of us. For the science segment of our show, I'll play the fool to Hen Socrates as he enlightens me, and hopefully you, on the subject of some scientific herald and its potential. Hi, this is Henning, and I did a bit of research on fusion and fission this month. Like most people, I was functioning on this bit of basic knowledge, that great amounts of energy can be got from splitting an atom apart, and that somehow even more energy can be got by putting them back together. I always wondered how this was possible. How can fusion and fission both yield energy? What did you find out? Well, it turns out there's a reason they don't really get too far into the science of it on the news or even on TV shows devoted to the subject. It's quite complicated. But since I trust you, dear listener, to be as curious as I am, and I don't have anything else to fill this spot, the reason fusion and fission both yield energy has to do with two forces that we don't deal with on normal human scales. That is the strong nuclear force and the force of electromagnetic repulsion between protons. As you'll remember from high school chemistry, particles of like charges are naturally repelled by each other. So to get a bunch of protons, which are positively charged, to stay together in the nucleus of an atom requires another force, the strong force. And that's actually what it's called, the strong force. It's the strongest in the universe, in fact. Without it, the nucleus of an atom, which could consist of hundreds of protons all repelling each other, would just fly apart. This strong force is obviously much more powerful than the electromagnetic repulsion, but for it to work, the protons have to be almost touching each other. And to get two protons that close, close enough to overcome their repulsion and snap together, requires a lot of heat and compression. 20 million degrees Celsius, in fact. Until the 20th century, the centers of suns were the only place in the universe with enough heat to smash protons together hard enough and often enough that they stuck and became something else. Is this fusion? This is fusion at its most basic. Two protons accelerated by intense heat collide and are stuck together by the strong force. They fuse, and through a complicated series of intermediate forms that I won't get into, 
they become helium. And as you keep adding protons, you make heavier and heavier elements. You can work yourself all the way up the periodic table. What element you have is entirely determined by the number of protons. Now it turns out if you measured the ingredients before the fusion and the products after the fusion, you'd find there is some missing mass. In our basic example, the resulting helium nucleus is less massive than the two free protons and two free neutrons that went into making it. This is equivalent to maybe a few percent of the mass of a proton. Tiny. But this translates into a lot of energy by Einstein's famous equation. A single nuclear fusion event can produce tens of millions of electron volts of energy. By comparison, an everyday molecular reaction, like combustion or digestion, is on the order of only one electron volt. But why exactly does the energy suddenly appear out of the missing mass? Well, you have to accept that energy and mass are basically interchangeable at this level. Looking at things this small has taught us that they are essentially the same thing. You have to remember that energy is just the capability of something to accelerate mass. Everything massive has this intrinsic energy, this rest mass, which is equal to the amount of work it would take to get it moving. For the kind of explanation that doesn't require you and I get a degree in particle physics first, <clears throat> here is the best I can do. If you are driving, you may want to pull over and concentrate on this. Remember that the strong force only works when the particles are nearly touching. Think of the particles as billiard balls stuck together in as close to a spherical nucleus as they can manage. When a proton or neutron is completely surrounded by other protons and neutrons, that's a lot more strong force being exerted than with just two particles touching each other. Consequently, we say a nucleus with many particles exerting strong force on surrounding particles is more tightly packed because it would take more energy to break it apart. But as the number of protons increases, so does the amount of electromagnetic repulsion that's pushing them apart. The balance between these two forces, the strong force and the electromagnetic repulsion, is known as the total nuclear binding energy of the atom. It's a net energy level. You add the total strong force being exerted and then subtract the repulsion being exerted. The repulsion is felt between every proton in the nucleus, regardless of its arrangement but the strong force is limited by its close, close range. A particle can only be surrounded by a certain amount of other particles, and particles that are not in direct contact with each other are not exerting strong force on each other. So as you keep fusing up the periodic table, the amount of strong force added to the equation per particle starts to fall off, whereas the amount of repulsion added to the equation keeps increasing at about the same rate. So there is a new balance of these forces, a different net binding energy for the nucleus, every time a new particle is added. The difference in the binding energy per particle of different elements is where the energy in a fusion reaction comes from. In basically the same way as a moving billiard ball will collide with and impart its energy to another ball, nuclear energy is imparted unto gamma rays and free neutrons, which shoot off very fast. When we go to measure the mass of the new nucleus, and we do that by bouncing a particle off it and seeing how much energy the particle returns with, uh, we find the mass of the new nucleus is less than what went into the reaction. Alright, so what about fission? How can that make energy too? Well, you can pack a nucleus tighter only up to a certain point. Because the repulsion grows steadily while the strong force falls off, the net binding energy tops out at iron. 
iron has the tightest, most stable nucleus of all elements. Fusing more particles onto an iron nucleus will no longer yield energy, but eat it up instead. Nature hits a barrier at iron, and this is why it's so abundant in the solar system. Of course, it is possible to fuse beyond iron, but only in a supremely energetic environment like a supernova. And yet, so many stars have gone supernova since the beginning of the universe that we do have enough of the heavier elements to play around with here on Earth. Splitting a heavy atom, like uranium, into two lighter elements yields energy because the products of the fission are more tightly packed than the heavier uranium. You can split atoms and yield energy down to the iron barrier. In general, a fission reaction is a lot easier to achieve than fusion. The splitting of the heavy atoms is induced by neutrons, not protons. And with a neutron, of course, because it's neutrally charged, overcoming electromagnetic repulsion is not a factor. So fission doesn't require the huge amounts of compression and heat that fusion does. Well, it may be easier, but there's a whole lot of other things wrong with fission. Right. The disadvantages of nuclear fission are well known. The right type of uranium is a rare isotope that has to be manufactured in a dangerous and energy-intensive process. And depending on which two lighter elements we get as a result of the fission, strange radioactive elements can be created. The term radioactive means the nucleus is unstable and will spontaneously decay into lighter stable elements. In the same way as the induced fission, this decay gives off energy, but not in an instantaneous useful way. Some of the byproducts of fission can still be randomly shooting dangerous amounts of gamma rays a hundred years after they originally split. In addition, an uncontrolled fission reaction and enough uranium fuel can produce too much energy too quickly, a fact that was exploited for making the first atomic bombs. Fusion is safer on all accounts. A runaway nuclear chain reaction is a lot harder. There are no long-lasting radioactive byproducts, only stable helium and a lot of energy. The ingredients of fusion are radioactive, but they are created and stabilized entirely within the closed system of the reactor. Despite the difficulty of producing and maintaining a temperature of 20 million degrees, fusion is within our capability and has been achieved many times in the 20th century. The first large man-made fusion reactions were the hydrogen bombs. To get enough heat and compression, though, all designs required first exploding an integrated fission bomb. In 1982, the Tokamak Fusion Test Reactor at Princeton came online, and since then, 15 reactors have achieved controlled fusion in rings of super-hot plasma contained by magnetic fields. But so far, none have yielded more energy than it took to create and maintain the plasma. The ITER in the south of France is the next multinational Tokamak project. It will become operational around 2016 and is expected to post a positive net energy yield by sustaining its plasma ring longer than any previous Tokamak, up to eight minutes. So, so in answer to the question how can fission and fusion both yield energy, it's a matter of what end of the periodic table you start at. Starting with hydrogen, you can fuse up to iron, yielding heavier and tighter nuclei and energy. Starting with uranium, you can split down to iron, yielding lighter but stabler nuclei and energy. This energy comes from differences in the balance of strong force and electromagnetic repulsion in the nucleus for different elements. Technically, 
Fusing or splitting all the way to iron is possible, but as you get closer to the iron barrier, it gets harder and harder for smaller and smaller energy yields. So, not that our current technology is capable of anything beyond, but in practice we stick to hydrogen, the lightest element, and uranium, the heaviest natural element. And that's my report. And that's my report. I hope you learned something, Max. Oh, yeah. I don't think and I hope you all got something out of it, too. Though I realize it might have been kind of hard to follow at times. Well, at the very least, we do these science sections to inspire your own curiosity, inspire your own learning. I certainly got that out of it. Right now, I want to know more about sonoluminescence-induced fusion and, and fermions and Bremsstahlung losses. But I suppose that can wait till the next show. He's just kidding. That's not what the next show will be about. We believe the most important step to preserving real democracy and saving the world is a well-informed and self-informed public. People who teach themselves and can speak from a place of wisdom rather than a place of frightened reactionary ignorance. People who know what the truth looks like and can discern it for themselves. And this is why we designed our show to be a mix of science fact, abstract philosophy, and environmental opinion. Because saving the world is not just an argument between vehement factions until one side wins or a compromise is reached. We believe there is a right answer. And the quality and the origin of the ideas that lead to the argument, and the quality and the origin of science fact that informs the argument, are the real keys to resolving the argument and moving forward. Henning, we're all right in some universe, but we're more right in this one. Which brings us to the unofficial interim slogan of the show. Pew, pew! Right at the ignorance. That's right. See, we're like shooting a gun surgically at the ignorance in your head. And it has a double meaning, too, because the bullets can be like the bullet points of our argument. The short and sweet points of our argument. Pew! The Earth's rivers are drying up, due not just to an increased temperature, but complete mismanagement of resources. Don't move. Pew! Fusion holds the promise of a better tomorrow, but it's currently too energy-draining for it to be our miracle cure of oil dependence. At ignorance. It's a good slogan, I think. And it speaks so clear to our purpose. Did you notice I only fired one shot? Um, yeah. Why did... It's because I aimed first. Oh, that's cute. This has been The Gadfly, Episode 1, for the month of September 2006. If you'd like links to internet sources where you can learn more, or a script of the show, visit The Gadfly's live journal home at gadflyshow.livejournal.com. If you'd like pictures and more audio, go to myspace.com forward slash gadflyshow. 
please leave comments or criticism or more questions for us at either site. And thanks for listening. Yeah.